Amen. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we're going to sing some more at the end. I don't know, we just seem to sing better after the sermon. I don't know if it's that we're glad the message is over. <laughs> Thank God he's through. Uh, but uh, Or maybe it's just our response to the Word and our worship that comes out of the Word. This is the last in the messages on the Set Free. And if you've been following along in this series, you know that the Holy Spirit has not been prominent at all in the book of Romans up to this point. In fact, he's not mentioned once in chapter 5 or in chapter 6. He's only mentioned once in chapter 7. But in chapter 8, the Holy Spirit comes to the forefront. He becomes a predominant theme. What God has done for us in the Spirit and that the essential nature of the Christian life is life in the Spirit. We are sustained, we are directed, we are enriched, and we are empowered by the Spirit of God. And there are few statements that resonate more with believers than the statement, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When that gets in your heart, and when you realize that Christ has paid the full price for our sin, for your sin and mine, that He has done everything necessary to redeem us, that we couldn't have done anything to help Him. He did it all for us. There is therefore now no condemnation. God does not want us living in defeat. God never wanted the children of Israel to walk around in the wilderness for 40 years. God did not deliver us. If you take the Old Testament picture of Egypt being the old way of life and the wilderness being getting to the promised land and the promised land being the spirit-filled life, God never intended us to die in the wilderness. He never intended us to die defeated lives discouraged lives. He intended us to live victoriously in the Christian life, that no matter what life dealt us, that there was victory and power through the Holy Spirit to face whatever comes our way. We do not work for victory. We work from a victory already provided. That victory was provided in Jesus Christ, and it is given to us in the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Now, what we have to understand is God doesn't demand of us something He doesn't provide. God does not demand that I live a perfect life or that I live a victorious life in my own flesh, in my own power. He knows I am incapable of doing that. It is impossible for me to do that. On my best day, I could not get through a whole day and be victorious. If I gritted my teeth, if I tried harder, promised to do better, I'm still going to blow it. God does not intend me to try. He intends for me to trust. And when you and I understand that, then you realize that this is our problem And I think it is my problem. I think it is the problem for most of us. We are more aware of our struggles 
than we are of His sufficiency. I'm more aware of my shortcomings than I am of the Spirit sometimes. Do you understand what I'm saying? Everybody, you understand? I mean, because the devil is going to always whisper in your ear and remind you of your shortcomings. And you're going to look back on your failures, and you always will focus on your failures and not on what faith can do in your life. And so my problem is, and I think for many Christians, our problem is that we get far more aware of our struggles, our shortcomings, our setbacks, and our failures than we do of the sufficiency of God. And the problem is not the weakness of my flesh. It is the strength of my flesh. The flesh dies hard because the flesh thinks there's some way that I can do something and I don't need God to help me do this. I remember when I was in youth ministry back just before the light bulb was invented. And uh, I, I remember just talking to people about it that, that we try so hard. And, you know, we, we tell people, we have mistaught people through the years try harder, do better, make a resolution you know, rededicate your life. And, and, and I learned you cannot rededicate what hasn't been dedicated. The first thing is to get on the altar and die. Well, we don't want to hear that. We, we want to hear that we can put a few Band-Aids on our life and patch it up in a few areas. But we, we really don't want to hear, especially in American culture, in my flesh dwells no good thing. That there is nothing in my flesh that is pleasing to God. That the only thing that can please God is allowing the Holy Spirit of God to work through me. And so when you come to Romans chapter 8, you, you realize what God had said is right in his commentary when he described the flesh as the inclination to seek self-satisfaction in everything. The inclination to seek self-satisfaction in everything. I am just inclined, left to myself, to do that which makes me feel better about myself or comforts me or makes me feel secure, that, that makes me not have to sacrifice or, or to be stretched or to operate by faith. And yet faith is the realm in which God has called us to operate. And the only way I can operate by faith is to cooperate with the Holy Spirit of God. We talked in Deacon's meeting tonight about George Mueller. One of the greatest books you'll ever read is the story of George Mueller, who ran an orphanage and had 3,000 mouths to feed every day. And there were times when George Mueller would sit down and say the blessing for the food with hundreds and hundreds of orphans in front of him with empty plates and no food to put on the plate. And while he was praying, a knock would come at the door and food would be left at the door to feed the children. George Mueller taught all those orphans, we're going to live by faith. And in our mindset, in our culture, we want to live by what we can see and sense and smell and touch and, and what we by our willpower can do. But our willpower will not give us a victorious life. It is the Spirit's power that gives us the victorious life. And so in chapter 7 and verse 25, because really these are tied together, what Paul is saying goes back to the end of chapter 7. He says in chapter 7 and verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, 
I find myself with my mind and serving the law of God, but on the other hand, with my flesh, the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Jesus Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, one commentator put it this way, God gave the law which could neither make man right with God nor make him live right before God. This is no reflection on the law, but rather a condemnation on human depravity. The law simply shows us that we need the Lord, that we cannot live up to his standards. And when somebody says, you know, and and you've heard this, if you've lived or breathed or gone outside of your house, you've heard people say, well, I just can't help myself. Well, it's just my nature. Well, it's just I was the way I was raised. What they're saying is, I'm still bound to the law of sin and death. I've not understood that the law of the life, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free. I, I don't understand the Bible. When I say that, because what I'm saying is that the thoughts that I have and the images and the arrogance and the pride or whatever it is, whatever my sin is, it has one root. It may be multiple ways in which I disobey God or displease God, but there's one root. It's the law of sin and death. I am a sinner. I am judged a sinner. I am under the wrath of God. And unless... Grace touches my heart and shows me that I'm a sinner and the Holy Spirit convicts me of sin and I respond to that and I make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ by repenting and changing my ways. I'm still in bondage to the old man. I'm still in bondage to my old nature. I'm still in bondage to the law of sin and death. He says there's no condemnation. Why? Because we are in Christ Jesus. Now, if you can remember a few things that will help you. How many of you, when you blow it, try to kick yourself in the seat of the pants? I mean, you just, I can't believe I did that. That was stupid. Why did I say that? Why did I do that? And you know who's applauding that? The devil. You see, the devil's applauding you kicking yourself, but you've got an advocate that's sitting by the Father who's saying, I knew he was going to do that. But you see, he trusted me, and his sin, past, present, and future, is covered by the blood, so there's no condemnation. It doesn't mean it, was wrong for, it wasn't wrong for you to do it. It doesn't mean you don't ask for forgiveness. I mean, First John 1, 9 is written to Christians, not to non-Christians. But it means that I have to understand there's now for no condemnation. Who condemns? God doesn't condemn. God convicts. Here's the difference. The devil will tell you you're worthless and you cannot be forgiven. And he'll talk to you in generalities. The devil will always speak, you're a bad person. And he'll talk to you in generalities. The Holy Spirit says, you said a bad word about this person. The Holy Spirit convicts specifically. The devil condemns generally. There's a huge difference. 
The Holy Spirit points out what sin it was that grieved the heart of God. The devil just tells you you're a sorry person. I would rather the Holy Spirit convict me of a specific sin than listen to the devil just tell me I'm a sorry person. Because when the Holy Spirit convicts me of that sin, I have access to the throne room of God and I can go immediately to the throne of grace and ask God to forgive me and the scripture says he will. So there's no condemnation. God is not angry at me. I want to tell you, for folks that have been raised in abusive situations, that's hard for them to understand. That's hard for them to understand. That God's not angry at them. God is holy and God hates sin. But God set his love on you that while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. He shows grace to you when you deserve wrath. That's why there's nothing you can do to earn it and merit it. It's all of grace. And he now deals with me as a son. I I remember going to the principal's office one time, and that was not fun. Coach Milstead. He had a board the size of Noah's Ark. And I went with fear and trembling. Now, I went with fear and trembling with my dad because my dad caught me doing a few things in my life. There's only one or two. I was pretty much a perfect kid. But, but my dad caught me doing some things. But I want to tell you, there was a difference in a high school principal and your father. And not only the way they discipline, but how they respond to you after they've disciplined you. The principal didn't come back the next day and hug me and tell me he loved me. They don't do that. My dad did. You see, because he had a love for me as a son. And so as a son, he treated me differently. God disciplines us sometimes, but he also disciplines us as a son. And I am not under his wrath, nor will I face everlasting judgment in the final outpouring of wrath. Now, what that means is simply this. It means I don't want to sin, I want to worship. Because knowing that I am out from under wrath and under grace, I want to worship God. Not see how many times I can disappoint Him. Not see how many times I can get away with things. You see, the greater law is at work. I've been set free from the law of sin and death. It no longer holds me in its grip. The law that is working in my life now is the law of the Spirit of life in Christ. And my walk depends on my mind. Look at verse 5. See, my conduct is determined by my perspective. My conduct is determined by my perspective. Look at verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. The battle is in the mind. Now look at what he says. Set your mind on the things of the flesh. If you set your mind on the things of the flesh, that is death. But if you set your mind on the things of the Spirit, that is life and peace. It's not maybe, hope so. It is life and peace. And so write this down. The law that you surrender to determines the path you take. 
The law that you surrender to determines the path you take. And if I've set my mind on the things of the Spirit, then the law of the Spirit operates in my life, and that determines the path that I take. So in my mind, surrendered to the Spirit, setting my mind on the Spirit, knowing that having my mind on the Spirit, I have life and peace, that determines the choices I make. And then it's not really a choice because my mind's already been renewed and made up that I'm going to do things that are consistent with the Spirit of God. And when I blow it, I'm going to get back on the right path. If I make a detour, if I have a blowout, I'm going to get back on the right path. And so to live in the flesh or according to the flesh is to live like I haven't been saved. So let's look at it. Walking in the flesh. And there are several things here. And let's just kind of go through it. Is this in your outline? Yes, it is. Okay, good. Walking in the flesh is, first of all, to have a fleshly mindset. Verse 5, the first part of verse 5 is to have a fleshly mindset. Secondly, it is to have a death-like existence. You see, I don't believe that the most miserable people in the world are lost people. I believe it's saved people who are acting like lost people because they've tasted of grace. They've seen that God is good, and they've walked away from it. Thirdly, is to have a hostility toward God, verse 7, the first part. A hostility toward God. It is to have a rebellious lifestyle, verse 7, the last part. And it is to refuse to obey God. So to walk in the flesh is to have a fleshly mindset, to have a death-like existence, to be hostile toward God, to have a rebellious lifestyle, and to refuse to obey God. But look at walking in the Spirit. It is to be spiritually minded. Now notice these verses are almost, he's going one and he's going to the other. It is to be spiritually minded. In verse 6, the second part of verse 6 It is an abundant expression of life as God intended it. To walk in the Spirit is an abundant expression of life as God intended it. In other words, when I walk in the Spirit, I'm walking in the model of what Jesus gave me and put His Spirit inside me to empower me to live like He intended me to live. I'm not out there on my own. I'm not trying to do religion. I have a relationship that God has empowered me with to live a life that I could not live on my own. Thirdly, it's spirit-filled, overflowing. Not just barely, but spirit-filled, controlled. It's spiritually vibrant, verse 10. Spiritually vibrant, verse 10. And then we live in resurrection power, verse 11. Who we are determines how we think. How we think determines how we behave. And how we behave reveals who we are. I need to tell you that one again. Who we are determines how we think. How we think determines how we behave, and how we behave reveals who we are. Look at verse 9. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Now, to be in the Spirit, and in other epistles, Paul talks about being in Christ, are the same thing. They're synonymous. They mean the exact same thing. They cannot be separated. They're one in the same. In chapter 7, verses 17 and 20, he talked about sin indwelling us. But in chapter 8 and verse 9, he talks about the Spirit indwelling us. In chapter 7, sin's indwelling. In chapter 8, the Spirit is indwelling. Now let's look at the consequences of the Spirit's indwelling. Verse 10 and verse 11. And if, verse 10, but if, 
verse 11. The consequence of the Spirit's indwelling is I have life here and now, and I also have eternal life. By the way, eternal life does not start when you die. For these eight people that walked through the baptismal waters, what they were saying is eternal life started with them when they confessed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. You know that you're already living an eternal life. You will never taste the second death. Death has lost its sting. Death has no victory. Death has no power over you. So you've already walked into the realm of eternal life. You have life here and now abundantly, but you have eternal life. Why? Because God has made a difference in your life, and He is not only the life, but He's the life giver. And He's not only the life giver, He's prepared the place where we're going to live the life. So everything you need's already been taken care of. We just have to appropriate it and live in it. Starting to sound like Bill Stafford. Because of Adam, we die physically. But because of Christ, we live spiritually. And one day, all the dead in Christ are going to be quickened in their spirit, and their body's going to be raised to a resurrection body, and we're going to ever be with the Lord. So don't ever think that you can ignore these facts. Number one, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. He doesn't come and go. He's not a guest who leaves, comes back, leaves, and comes back. He's a resident in your heart. He has taken up residence in you. The Holy Spirit dwells in the believer. You say, well, how does he do that? If I could explain it, I'd be teaching in a seminary. I know the Bible says it, and so I believe it. Billy Graham said the great moment in his life was when he went out and sat under a tree one night and said, God, I don't understand everything in your word. It's far more than I can comprehend, but I believe every word of it. And he said, from that moment on, I had power. I don't have to explain it all. It's, there are the mysteries of God that have yet to be revealed. I tell you, the greatest mystery for me is not the second coming. It's not other things. The greatest mystery for me is why God loved me in the first place. That's the greatest mystery. Why did he love me in the first place? He didn't have to. Why did he leave the riches in the realm of glory to come and die for me? He didn't have to. He chose to do it. The Holy Spirit dwells in me, and because he dwells in me, I am a debtor. And so, therefore, I'm obligated to be what God saved me to be. Now, look at verse 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so, first of all, we die to the flesh. I must be as ruthless with my flesh as those soldiers were with the body of Jesus at the cross. I must put to death the flesh. I have to be tenacious about it. I cannot coast. I can't wait for a revival to remind me of it. I can't wait for a youth camp or a disciple now or a retreat or an event to remind me that I'm supposed to put to death the deeds of the flesh. I have to do it every day. Paul said, I die daily. Jesus said, take up your cross daily. He said, if you're going to follow me, you've got to take up a cross. And the only reason for a cross 
is for dying. I must repent without making excuses or justifying behavior. Now, here's what that means to die to my flesh. It means that if I'm in a conflict with somebody, that I don't say, well, I'm sorry for what I did, but you did some things too. That's not repentance. That's justifying your flesh. That's saying, I may be wrong, but you're wrong too. It doesn't matter whether that person thinks they're wrong or not. The issue is, are you going to be right with God? Whether they choose to be or not. It is not your responsibility to be the Holy Spirit for somebody else. It's your responsibility to let the Holy Spirit do in you what He wants to do, and God will take care of the other person. So if we ever understood that, we wouldn't justify our behavior by saying, well, I know people that are doing worse than me. That doesn't matter. If all you did was tell what you think is a little white lie, that little white lie is what put Jesus on the cross. And we cannot sit there and say, well, but mine's not as bad as somebody else's. So I have to die to the flesh. I have to turn from every known sin. I have to see my sin the way God sees it. To cut it off. Don't make provision for the flesh. You know your flesh. You know your weaknesses. You know your frailties. You know your tendencies. Don't put yourself in a position where you're going to be tempted by that. That's what he's saying. So if there's something you know that hangs you up, avoid it. Run from it. Flee from evil. We are under obligation, an obligation to holiness. And by His power, we put to death anything that's inconsistent with His life. We die to the flesh. We live to God by the Spirit. I give my energy and my attention to the things of God. I, I discipline my mind through the study of the Word. I commune with God daily and pray without ceasing. I, I worship the Lord with my whole heart. I died with Christ, and now I have to daily choose to live with Christ. In some eternal way, you and I were there when Christ was crucified. We died with Him. In the same way, we must live with and in His power today. Because we died with Him, today we live with Him as a living sacrifice. And the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside of us. The resurrection power is inside of us. So here's some facts that we don't need to overlook. First of all, I must put my mind on the things of the Spirit. When Paul talks about the mind here... He's using a word that is more than intellect. The word is a very strong word in the Greek, and it stops short of obsession, but it pushes us beyond casual interest or occasional thoughts. When Paul says that we're to get our mind engaged with God, he's, he's not saying that all you think about is God all day long. What he is saying is you can't be casually interested and make this happen. You can't do this by just coming to church. This has got to be a part of your daily pattern and a part of your daily flow because there is a battle raging. And it is easy to lose our perspective if we forget that we're in a battle. Secondly, I must choose to walk in the Spirit. That means I'm making continual progress. Continual progress. I love this definition of discipleship. Discipleship is a long obedience in the right direction. That's what being a disciple is. Discipleship is not poof, all of a sudden, 
I've got it. I don't have to worry about anything more. It's a long obedience in the right direction. And when I'm pressured to detour, I stay on the course. Thirdly, I must allow the Spirit to do His work in me, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Now, the Spirit does not expect me to do His part, but I must not expect the Spirit to do my part. This is my responsibility, to put to death the deeds of the flesh, because every day I'm choosing my way of life. And if Jesus Christ is Lord of my life on a daily basis, then I have no problem putting to death the deeds of the flesh. So kind of watch the progression here. We are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, our spirits are alive. Therefore, we are debtors to the Spirit. Therefore, we are conformed to His character. Because we are the dwelling place of the Spirit, other things roll out of our lives because we've recognized that we are the dwelling place of the Spirit. And the thought here is an old term that I bet most of you have never heard. Some of you are going to have to be older or you're going to have to do a lot of reading to know this term. The thought here is mortification. It's an old theological word that you don't hear much anymore. But it's the mortification of the flesh, which is a ruthless rejection of the flesh. Now, we've allowed Hollywood and books like The Scarlet Letter to typecast the Puritans as a people that they were not. The Puritans are the reason we're in America today. They came over for religious freedom. They were willing to risk their lives so we could have religious freedom so that there would not be a church state where the church dictated. And aren't you glad you aren't a part of the church state right now or else you'd have to be approving of Prince Charles and his 30-year lover's wedding. See, we bend the rules. And the Archbishop of Canterbury said it's okay. The only problem is what Prince Charles has been doing has never been okay because he was sleeping with another woman while he was married to his wife. But the church is sanctioning it, saying it's okay. Now, it's going to be a secular ceremony. But the archbishop's going to pray a blessing over it. Now, let me tell you something, folks. When the church starts compromising so that the government shows it favor, the church has lost its ability to be the church. So here's what we've got. We've got the Puritans who their commitment was to holiness. Now, do they go to extremes sometimes? Probably. Do you ever go to extremes? But you have to look at the motives of their heart. They came to America believing that they could have the ability to establish a Christian nation. I'll go with that over Martin Scorsese. I'd run the risk of Puritans more than I would the Hollywood crowd today. You know, maybe they didn't err on the side of grace sometimes, but at least they had a standard. At least they had a standard. 
And so what we have here is, is God telling us that we are to have a ruthless rejection of all that we know to be wrong. Matthew five twenty nine. if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. So if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus was saying, I want you to take seriously sin. Because Jesus was about to die for sin. Listen to this. By purifying the desires of the heart, appetite leads to action. And disciplining the actions of the body. Obviously, Jesus isn't talking about literal surgery. That wouldn't solve the heart problem. The eye and the hand are usually two culprits that lead us down the wrong road. Jesus is saying, deal immediately and decisively with sin. Don't taper off, cut off. Don't just kind of ease out of it. Cut yourself off from it. Not just mortification, but application of the Spirit. Setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, you've got a whole list of things there, and let's go through them very quickly. The law of the Spirit is mentioned in verses 1 through 4. The law of the Spirit is mentioned in verses 1 through 4. Setting your mind on the Spirit is mentioned in verses 5 through 8. The indwelling of the Spirit is mentioned in verses 9 through 11. Life in the Spirit is mentioned in verse 12 and 13. Being led by the Spirit is mentioned in verses 14 and 15. The witness of the Spirit is mentioned in verses 16 and 17. The first fruits of the Spirit are mentioned in verses 18 through 25. And the intercession of the Spirit is mentioned in verses 26 and 27. These are attitudes and actions based on the fact that God has given us the Spirit. And if you read those passages and if you look at that brief outline I just took you through, everything you need to live the victorious Christian life is right there. If you can just apply it and appropriate it to your life on a daily basis. So if you want to know how to live the victorious life, then I would do a lot of reading in Romans 8 and then learn how to apply it and study it because it is one of the real keys. I want to read you something. 1999, Roger Breland sent this to me and it's called Dying to Self. When you are forgotten or neglected or purposely set at naught, and you don't sting and hurt when the insult or oversight, but your heart is happy being counted worthy to suffer for Christ, that is dying to self. When your good is evil spoken of, when your wishes are crossed, your advice disregarded, your opinions ridiculed, and you refuse to let anger rise in your heart or even defend yourself, but take it all in patient, loving silence, that is dying to self. When you lovingly and patiently bear any disorder, any irregularity, any impunctuality, or any annoyance, when you stand face to face with waste, folly, extravagance, spiritual insensibility, and endure it as Jesus endured it, that is dying to self. When you are content with any food, any offering, any clothing, any climate, any society, any solitude, any interruption by the will of God, 
That is dying to self. When you never care to refer to yourself in conversation or to record your own good works or itch after commendation, when you can truly love to be unknown, that is dying to self. When you can see a brother prosper and have his needs met and can honestly rejoice with him in spirit and feel no envy or question God, while your own needs are far greater and in desperate circumstances, that is dying to self. When you receive correction and reproof from one of less stature than yourself and can humbly submit inwardly as well as outwardly, finding no rebellion or resentment rising within your heart, that is dying to self. Are you dead yet? In the last days, the Spirit would bring us to the cross that I may know him and be made conformable to his death. When I get to where all of that that I just read to you is true, I'll understand a lot more what being set free is. Dead men have no feelings. They are dead to flattery and to flattening. And as long as we think we deserve anything other than judgment, we're not dead. As long as we think we deserve better, we've not died to self yet. You say, well, that's just so natural. Right, and that's the problem. It's so natural. But God called us to live supernaturally with a powerful spirit that enables us to rise above our circumstances, our downfalls, our criticisms, our setbacks, and bless him no matter what's going on. We're going to sing. I'm going to ask our praise team to come. And uh, we have a number of people to present tonight. And so when we start singing the song Evermore, which will be about the third song we're singing, when we start singing the song Evermore, if you're to be presented tonight, then I want to encourage you to just step out and come down here to the side. But tonight, as always, when we do this, these altars are open. If there's an area that you need to die to, if there's a a thing that you need to do tonight, a decision that you need to make, somebody that you need to pray with you, Anytime while we're singing, you are free to come and to move down these aisles. So I want us to stand, if we could, and I want us to sing to the Lord who has loved us and given himself for us so that we might have life and have it more abundantly. So as we sing, you come. Those of you that are going to come to be presented on the last song evermore, if you'd step out and come on that song.